It is so great to see you. Thank you for being here this weekend. For those of you who may be guests, I've had a little bit of a break this summer, and I have missed Northridge, Ann Arbor, Saline, Northridge, Brighton Hall, Northridge, Plymouth, and even those of you growing with Northridge Church Online, I have really missed being here on the platform, but you have missed nothing because this series, Unforgettable, and the teachers that have been bringing it this summer have been awesome, haven't they? They've been great. I've snuck in and sat in the balcony a couple times. I've watched online, and it is just an exciting thing. It truly has been an unforgettable series, and I just feel privileged to once again be adding to the conversation. Just to remind you, the series Unforgettable is based upon the idea that for each of us who have the privilege of sharing through talks like this, we have been impacted by some particular truths in ways that have marked our lives become unforgettable. And we've decided to put those truths into talks to share with you in hopes that God might use them in your life in the same way he has in ours. And so as I move forward into this weekend's unforgettable truth for me, I have to kind of set context for you. I, I, was, I was raised in a Christian religious home. Uh, at the beginning days of my life, it was not a home where there was a relationship with God. It was a home in which Christianity was our religion, our ritual. We went to a particular church that was very traditional and liturgical. You put in your time and then you left, but there wasn't a dynamic and vital and real personal relationship with God. Along the way, I was privileged to have parents that did discover that personal relationship with God and it transformed their life. It took me a long time to get there. I just, I couldn't get the whole Christianity thing because I heard them talking about a Jesus who made a difference, but I saw no difference in their lives. I, I heard them talking about promises that they could experience from God, whether it be peace or hope or purpose, but I just didn't see any signs of it in their life. It was like they talked about life, but they had and were experiencing death. And, and I'm sorry, I'm just not one that's into pretense. If it's real, I want to know it's reality. If it's not, then I'm out. Then I looked into the Bible after becoming a Christ follower, and I realized that the church wasn't supposed to be a place where we pretended to have something that we didn't. The church wasn't to be a place where we talked about promises that weren't experienced. It, it wasn't supposed to be an experience that was all built into the future when we might go to heaven someday, but not experienced here. It was supposed to be real and vital and experienced here. I found that in Acts chapter 2, which really sets the context. It was the beginning days of the church of Jesus Christ, the beginning days. In Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47, it says, Those who accepted Peter's message, Peter stood up in the same community, in the same culture, in the same basic time as when they screamed crucify to Jesus and, and they put Jesus to death. And in those times, Peter then stood up and preached the truth of Jesus. And those who accepted his message were baptized. It was about 3,000 who were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They absolutely were devoted to following this Christ who was no longer visibly present. He had come, he had lived this perfect life, he had died for the death of the sins of humanity, he had been buried, and then he had burst forth into new life to give new life to all who would receive him, and then he ascended to the Father. And yet all of this community of people were now devoting themselves to following him. And everyone was filled with awe. This wasn't something they talked about without experiencing. This is something that was real. It was impacting everyone it touched, and everyone was filled with awe. And wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles, things that could only be explained by a supernatural God, not a natural community of people, were happening. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They actually sold their possessions and goods and they gave to anyone as they had need, not because they had to, but because they were so being controlled by compassion and moved with generosity that they gave up that which they could keep for themselves in order to meet the needs of others. And this is, as a pastor, this is an amazing verse. 
Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. I, I can't even get people here once a week. I mean, every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. And I know some of you are going, is this an introduction and then are we going to worship? And is the talk coming later? No, the talk's coming right now. And there are a thousand people who are yet to show up to hear this talk because they think it's going to start in about a half hour. And, you know, they're not necessarily motivated by every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts kind of a gig. And I just want to remind you that, you know, um, we're, we're going to surprise you around here. We're not going to do what we've always done so that you can expect what you've always expected. We're going to kind of change it up and mess with your heads just a little bit because... If I'm going to be dysfunctional, I want to help you be dysfunctional in life. I mean, I, I just... Uh... But every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. I mean, they were so passionate for this Jesus who was making a difference in their life. They wouldn't have gotten together every day if all of it was was talk and no show. But because Jesus was making this unbelievable difference in their lives, in their community, they wanted more and more and more of it. And they... They didn't just get enough when they were together in the temple courts, but then they would then back away into their homes together and they broke bread together and ate together and they were, they were filled with glad and sincere hearts. And they were praising God and enjoying even the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They couldn't stop people in this environment that once had shouted, crucify Jesus and put him on the cross. They couldn't stop people from moving into their community because they couldn't stop people from wanting what they had. The promise of Jesus wasn't words. It was being experienced and people wanted it. They wanted life and life to the full. That's what the church was like. That's what it was supposed to be like. Jesus is real and he's supposed to impact our reality. But the problem is, more often than not, this isn't our experience. I mean, I certainly growing up rejected the whole concept of church because religion had no touch with the reality of Jesus' presence and promise. It was dead ritual and tradition. But then I came to faith in Christ and I, I started on the inside experiencing his transformative power in me and I knew he was for real, but even after that, more often than not, I wasn't experiencing this kind of transformative reality because of my relationship with Jesus. And the churches I was part of certainly weren't experiencing this. I mean, people would show up and leave and nothing would happen. People would show up and leave and there was no change. People would show up and talk about hope and they'd leave in despair. People would show up and talk about, you know, joy and they'd leave in misery. People would show up and talk about peace, but they'd live in anxiety. People would show up and talk about freedom, but they'd live in bondage. People would show up and talk about forgiveness, but they wouldn't give any and they couldn't process their own. And it was just dead. Those were the churches I was a part of. They weren't experiencing Acts chapter 2. And it was my heart's desire to experience the reality of Jesus if I was going to follow Jesus. But even worse, I wasn't personally seeing it anywhere. It doesn't mean it wasn't happening anywhere. It means any place I could put my eyes, I wasn't seeing believers experiencing the reality of Christ's promise. I only found believers talking about it, but far from it. I didn't see it happening in any church that I could lay my eyes on. And I have to tell you, I absolutely despised this because I knew from my own personal experience if people were going to know Jesus was real they needed to see the reality of his impact as it was being seen in Acts chapter 2. Why would someone believe in a God who not only was invisible but the consequences of his reality were nowhere being seen? Why would they want to leave their stagnant lives to come into a place that talked about promise but still experienced stagnant lives? I, I mean, I hated this. And yet, Acts 2 wasn't happening in me or anywhere I was a part of or could see. So I started looking for the reason. Because I had experienced the touch of Christ in my life and his transformative power in, in ways in my life. I knew he was real, but I had to figure out why isn't he real always to me and to the communities that claim him? I started looking for the reason. What was wrong with me? What was wrong with the churches I was a part of? What was wrong with the other believers that claimed his promises but didn't experience them? The other churches that proclaimed his promises and weren't experiencing them? Where were we falling short? Well, this weekend, what I want to do is I want to share with you 
what I discovered and for me became unforgettable and life-defining. It helps to drive my personal relationship with him and helps to drive everything I've been called to as a spiritual leader and pastor. To be honest, I discovered there was a problem with me. There was a problem with the churches that I was a part of. There was a problem with all the churches that I laid my eyes on and all the believers that I had the ability to see. But this was the surprise. The surprise was I should have expected the problem instead of being surprised by the problem. You see, I thought the problem was unique to our time. I thought the problem was unique to me. There was something uniquely wrong with me, uniquely wrong with churches I was a part of, uniquely wrong with Christianity in the late 20th century and then the early 21st century. I thought there was something unique to us. But as I really started studying what God has told us, I found out that this problem wasn't new. That Acts 2, though it could be the norm, it should be the norm, it's supposed to be the norm, isn't usually the norm. Though the promises of God can always be experienced The norm is that they're generally not experienced. And God warned us about it. It's not new. God warned us about this problem. And I want to show you the warning. Look at 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. In 2 Timothy 3, God warns us through the Apostle Paul. He says, mark this. I mean, open your eyes to this reality. Take note of this reality. There will be terrible times as the days progress. As you move further and further away from the reality of Acts 2, as you move further and further away from the reality of my time on this planet, Jesus' time on this planet, and there will be terrible times that erupt. And then he talks about the characteristics of those times. Mark this, there are going to be terrible times as the days progress. People will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love. They'll be unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, Not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now stop there for just a minute. If I'm reading this right, that's not a goal list for our lives. These are not positive characteristics. He's saying, mark this, as the days progress, as time progresses, there's going to be a tendency for these lousy, self-centered, self-obsessed characteristics to be driving people. And it will cause darkness and evil and corruption and destruction and it will eliminate hope and promise and everything we're looking for. However, when I thought about those first four verses, I thought, there's really nothing new there. Ever since Adam and Eve rejected God and pursued their own interests and we were stamped forever with this natural bent to do the same and each of us have for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God these are the characteristics that have defined humanity I mean this is why this has been such a dark and corrupt and messed up world this is why brokenness is such a common reality in our lives this is why bad things happen to all people, not just good people. It's because these are the characteristics that drive humanity, you and me. We've been a part of this. There's nothing new in any of that. But the passage isn't done. The warning's not done. Because it's not saying humanity will be driven by these characteristics of loving themselves and being ungrateful and being treacherous and rash and loving pleasure rather than loving God. It's not saying humanity will be driven by that. Humanity's always being driven by that. But here's what he says. Here's the warning. My church will be driven by it. He says, Mark this. As the days progress, as time passes... The characteristics that have destroyed humanity are going to become, if we're not careful, the characteristics of those who claim to follow me. Look what he says in verse 5. There will be people who have the form of godliness, who have the words of Jesus and the look of Jesus and do the activities of Jesus, but they will deny its power, have nothing to do with them. He's saying the problem is Not that humanity will be driven by these dark characteristics, but that those who claim to follow Jesus, who claim to know his redemption, who claim to have his new life, who have the form of godliness, 
who claim the promises will be just as corrupt and just as evil and just as self-obsessed and just as self-centered as anyone else in humanity. That's a problem. And I started going, whoa, no wonder we're all having problems. I started looking at my life and realizing these are some of the characteristics that drive me as I say I live in the name of Jesus. No wonder I have a problem. It's not new with me. It's normal if we don't see it and heed his warning. And I just need you to see some examples of this so you can know this isn't something that's a history lesson of the past. This is something that we all have to grapple with now. But because we're not grappling with it, we're not experiencing the life of promise. If your heart's desire is to know the reality of Jesus' impact in your life, you need to know it's possible to have the form of godliness, but not to have the power. In Acts chapter 2, we see this unfolding of the reality of Jesus being experienced, and it's changing, bringing the world, it's bringing light into darkness, but not long after Acts 2, about 40, 50, 60 years after Acts 2, it's an entirely different setup. Churches have spread throughout the world. There are these seven churches. They're called the seven churches of the Revelation that we find in the book of Revelation, last book of the Bible, chapters 2 and 3. And to these seven churches, Jesus shows up. I mean, Jesus himself shows up, and he talks to the, the leader of these churches. And I just want to share it. You read Revelation 2 and 3 on your own sometime, but, but let me share about three of his conversations. He came to what was known as the church at Ephesus, the church in the city of Ephesus. And this is what he said. It started out pretty good. He said, I know that you've worked hard, you've fought evil, and you've endured hardship. Now, I'm going to tell you, if that's the review I get at the end of the year, I'm expecting a bonus. You know, seriously. It's like, man, you've worked hard, you've fought evil, you've endured hardship. Woohoo! The only problem is the review didn't stop there. He says, you've worked hard, you've fought evil, you've endured hardship. But then this is what Jesus said. But you have forsaken your first love. You've forsaken your first love. You know what Jesus is saying? You have the form of godliness. You're working hard for God. You're fighting evil in the name of Jesus. You're enduring hardship in the name of Jesus. It's just that you don't have the heart of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus. And this is a problem. In John 13, 35, it says, By this will all men know that you're my followers, that you fought evil. doesn't say that. That you worked hard? No, it doesn't say it. That you endured hard? No. By this will all men know that you're my followers, by your love for one another. The problem was is they had the activity of godliness, but they didn't have God. And then he comes to another church, the church at Sardis. This is Jesus talking to the leader at Church of Sardis, and he says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. Wow, that's awesome. Isn't that what Acts 2 was? That's where my heart's desire is. It beats fast to be alive, not dead. To truly be living in hope instead of hopelessness and joy, even in the midst of sorrow, because of my relationship with him, for his promises to be true, to be alive. Isn't that what the resurrection's about? That we don't have to live in the death of our sin and failures, but we can live in the life of his resurrection. That's what it's about. And he's saying, you have the reputation of being everything the church is supposed to be. You have the reputation of being an Acts 2 church, of being alive. But then Jesus says to the leader of the church at Sardis, but you're not alive at all. You're dead, he says. Y you know what he's saying, right? You have the form of godliness. You look like you're alive. But you're really dead. And I have to tell you, I have to tell you, this is often my reality, where I look alive, I look like I'm thriving, but on the inside I'm more filled with emptiness than fullness, and fear than faith, bitterness than forgiveness, and hatred than love. I mean, and that was them. And then he came to the church at Laodicea. And I, I, this is so important, I'm going to read this particular thing. Jesus is talking to the leader of the church at Laodicea, and he says, I know your deeds, Revelation 3.15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. Now, he's not saying, I wish you were a godless pagan or a really great believer, because Laodicea was between kind of two hills. One side's a mountainous region where the snow-capped tips melted down and brought down cold water that was refreshing, and the other side were these hills that were filled with hot springs that people traveled around the world to come to for healing. 
And he says, I really wish you were like those hot springs and bring healing to the world. Or I wish you were like those, the fresh water that came off those mountains and you were cold and refreshing. But you're neither. You're more like the water underneath Laodicea. Laodicea had this mineral water underneath that was lukewarm and putrid. You couldn't drink it. And he says, I wish that you were cold or hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And here's why they had become so lukewarm. You say, I am rich and I have acquired wealth and I don't need a thing. God had blessed their lives. God had given them security and hope and promise. And they had taken what God had given and so fallen in love with what God had given that they fell out of love with God. We don't need God because we have all this stuff. And Jesus looked at them and said, Don't you realize that you are wretched, you are pitiful, you are poor, you are blind, and you are naked? You have this form of godliness. You get together and sing the songs and say the words and claim the promise, but you deny the power. And then Jesus finally identifies the problem. Here's the problem. Revelation 3.20, he's talking, and it's the problem not just for Laodicea. It's the problem for all these churches who have the form of godliness to deny the power. It's for me and you when we have the form of godliness where we look right and sound right and act like right but we're not right inside he says here's the problem here I am Jesus says here I am Revelation 3:20. I stand at the door and knock and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I'll come in and eat with him and he with me I stand at the door and knock now I've got a question for you If Jesus is standing at the door knocking, what does that say about where Jesus is? What's his location? Now, I really want some participation here. I know that you think that I'm on video right now and that you're not supposed to talk back, but even for our satellite worship centers, look it. You're supposed to engage this teaching. If you're on church online, I want you to yell at your computer screen right now. You got that? Okay, here. I mean, it's like, if Jesus is knocking, what's his location? He's outside. Here's our problem. I discovered what was wrong with me. I discovered what was wrong with the churches I was a part of. I discovered what the potential problem with all of Christianity is. I discovered why we can talk promises but not experience them. I I discovered why people don't believe our God's real because they don't see his reality in in our lives. I discovered the problem. And the problem is simply this. Are you ready? We've shut Jesus out of our lives. And when you shut him out of your lives, you don't have his power. You can have his look. You can have his words, you can act like him, you can claim him, but if you shut him out of your life, you don't have his power. And when we shut him out of our lives, we shut him out of the church because the church isn't a steeple or an organ or a building or an organization or a pastor or a staff. The church is people. And when the people of a church have shut Jesus out, Jesus is no longer building that church. No wonder hell's prevailing against us instead of us prevailing against hell because only Jesus can prevail against hell. And he's knocking. He's on the outside. Here's what happens. Over time, we tend to keep our forms we tend to keep our forms. We, we keep worshiping and we keep teaching and we keep serving and we keep gathering and we keep saying our prayers and we even keep giving and reaching out. But we lose the power. Lives don't change. Not ours, not others. The reality of Jesus isn't seen or experienced. Not in us or in others. Because we shut Jesus out and he's the power. But realize this. When, when, when we shut him out, it can be hard to see it because what we see doesn't change. When we shut them out, it can be hard to realize it. And I have to tell you, I know, I know what it's like to be sitting here and listening and talking about, I haven't shut Jesus out. You know, I say his name a lot. I listen to his music a lot. I hear his teaching. I open the Bible. I pray. I haven't shut Jesus out. Come on. I talk about him a lot. I'm here, Powell. Get off my frickin' back. I think I shut Jesus out when I said that word just now. I'm not sure. Let let me let him back in just for a minute. Okay. Wow. 
When we shut them out, it can be difficult to realize we've shut them out because we still talk the same way and act the same way in many ways and look the same way and like the same kind of music. Most people don't even realize when it's happened. Ephesus didn't know it. Sardis didn't know it. Laodicea didn't know it. They didn't know he was gone. And we look the same when he's knocking and we sound the same when he's knocking and we do many of the same things when he's knocking and we say many of the same things when he's knocking but we're not the same. We have the form of godliness but we're denying the power. We have the form of godliness but get this, this is where it really gets real. We have the form of godliness but we don't have the peace of God. We have the form of godliness but we don't have the contentment, the compassion or the generosity of God. We we have the form of godliness, but we don't have God's joy in our lives. Now, I have to tell you, I'm not interested in living a life of pretense. If Jesus isn't real, then I want to do something real. I, I'm, I'm with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Look, at if the resurrection of Jesus isn't true, and Jesus can't give me new life and hope, then I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. Man, it's party downtime because... All I've got is this and then I die. If Jesus isn't real, I have no interest in pretending. I don't want to proclaim a message that isn't real. And because my heart's desire was to experience the reality of Jesus' impact and I had known he was real because he had started transforming me from the inside out, it's just that it was really hard for me to hold on to that. And My heart's desire is to experience as a person and then as a pastor what they experienced in Acts 2. I wanted to figure out how I could spot this problem in my life before it was too late. I wanted to figure out how I could spot this problem before I lost the power. I didn't want to be one of those people where when I did finally meet Jesus, he said, you know, I was knocking, but you just never opened the door. And I'm really concerned, and you might wonder, why do you power up so much, Powell? I mean, why are you so stinking intense? Seriously? Because I am not willing for you to sit here thinking you're experiencing Jesus when you're not. I don't want you one day to stand before him and go, all I had was the knock, but I never had the real thing. That's not how I want to live my life, and that's not where I want you to be. So I wanted to figure out how to spot it before I got there, and I've discovered that shutting Jesus out evidences itself in in two primary ways. It reveals itself in these two primary ways. And though it's, it's a progressive thing and it's not easy to see, if you're on the look for it, you can find it and defend against it. And I'm telling you, I have fallen too many times to this thing not to want to stop it. And I guarantee you, you deal with it as well. You have to see it. What's the first one? It evidences itself that we're starting to progressively push Jesus to the outside of our lives, not to have him at the center of our lives, when we start redeveloping selfishness. Remember the warning. He says people are going to be lovers of themselves instead of lovers of God, lovers of pleasure, lovers of their own comfort instead of caring about others, and it's going to lead to all kinds of destructive behavior. And, and yet you'll have the form of godliness, but you'll deny the power. What happens is selfishness begins its slow creep into our lives. And it is a progressive thing. It doesn't start out being treacherous, but it gets there ultimately if we don't stop it. And selfishness, I define it this way. We, we start loving the wrong things. That's what selfishness is. Whereas we're supposed to love God and love others, we start primarily only loving ourselves. And that's the warning. You could have the form of godliness, the form of one who loves God and loves others, but you could really be only loving yourself. And I have to be honest, when I look at myself... This is very often my reality. As I look at others, this is often reality. As I look at churches, very often they're really selfish. They're living for themselves, making their own lives better, not caring about the world that Jesus left heaven to die for. We start loving the wrong things. Our love gets misdirected. And isn't it interesting, though we're lovers of ourselves rather than lovers of God, we sing songs about loving God. And though we're lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, we claim to be following God and we have the form of godliness but we deny the power of I'm warning you selfishness will creep into your life as time progresses unless you stop it now I call this a great commandment issue I call it a great commandment issue because Jesus was asked what the greatest command is and look what he said in Matthew chapter 22 verses 37 to 39 Jesus replied love the Lord your God with all your heart 
with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And by the way, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What he's saying here is you can't possibly love God with all your heart and not love others. It's impossible. And off of this, I actually see the two greatest problems in, in Christianity. The first problem is that it's eanity today. That's the first problem. It's not Christianity. It's eanity. I don't know what eanity is, but I don't like it. We need Christ in it. The first problem is we've shut Jesus out. The second problem is we've shut others out. That's the great command, love God, love others. And so we've come up with these two weekends to, you know, as we progress towards the end of the Unforgettable series. And, and because I'm such an unbelievably creative person, I had to come up with titles that were extremely creative. And so this week is called Love Part One. <laughs> and next week is called Love Part Two. Took me hours, friends. You wondered what I was doing on my break. There you got it. I was titling these talks. We start loving the wrong things. Instead of loving God and others, we love ourselves. And by the way, loving ourselves is natural. I just need to say it. Loving ourselves is natural. When we're born, we have this genetic predisposition to love ourselves. But Jesus Christ transforms us from self-obsessed people to compassionate people. The problem is we keep the form, but we lose the power. great example of this is Demas in the Bible. Look at 2 Timothy 4.10. Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me, the Apostle Paul said. This is a guy who experienced the Acts 2 experience. This is a guy who was transformed by Jesus. He put his faith in Jesus. This is a guy who was so transformed by Jesus that he gave his entire life to telling other people about Jesus. But over time, there was this slow, progressive creep where he went from loving God to loving himself, from loving others to loving himself. And that selfishness so dominated his life that though he still had the form of godliness, he had no power for godliness and he totally fell away. And that's the slow creep I can see in my life and others' lives in the church of Jesus Christ today unless we defend against it. This is a huge problem in many believers' lives today, in the church today. They have fallen in love with the wrong things. You know, those things that benefit them and them alone. Who gives a care about the world? They've fallen in love with those things that bring comfort and prosperity and pleasure and power and glory and security to themselves rather than falling in love with those things that benefit and bring glory to God. Many people in the name of Jesus have the form of godliness, but they love their traditions and their cultures and their comfort and their pleasures and their money and their preferences more than they love experiencing Jesus showing up and doing his work in their lives and other people's lives. Now listen to me, because you are going to deal with this, and if you want the reality of Jesus in your life, you need to know too many people are more interested in preserving their comfortable lives than they are in experiencing the work of God in them and around them. And if you're more into your own comfort than the work of God, you will live an empty, regrettable life, having the form of godliness but never experiencing the power and promises of God. Too many are more interested in preserving the church they love, you know, the way they do church and how they do church and what church feels like and what church does. They're, they're more interested in preserving the church they love than they are in making sure that the church they love is fulfilling the mission and God gave it. Simply, they love their lives and they love the way they do church more than they love their God. And though sad... Gradually falling in love with the wrong things, becoming selfish, is common. It's the normal progression. In latter days, as days progress, it's going to happen unless you put it in check. And you need to put it in check because when it happens, it keeps us from experiencing everything we long for in life, the promise and the power of God. And know this, because the church is people, the church isn't buildings and organizations and pastors and steeples and organs. The church isn't any of that. The church is people. And because the church is people, when we fall in love with the wrong things, it messes up the church. There's a reason that many churches love all the things that don't matter and none of the things that do. And I grew up in these kind of places. We have the propensity to do this if we're not careful. When we are selfish, it causes us to fall in love with things about our church that don't matter. You know, the culture of our church, the 
traditions of our church, the denomination our church is in, the buildings or the styles of music or the forms of governance or the ministry programs or, or the outfits, robes and suits and ties or not. It causes us to fall in, the name, fall in love with the names of our churches and the political preferences that we preach instead of what really matters, sharing Jesus with the world. And the average church today and the average Christian today would rather their church be the way they want their church to be than that their church shares Jesus. Jesus is on the outside knocking. We have the form of godliness, but we deny its power. First problem is the slow progressive creep of selfishness. The second way it evidences itself that Jesus is on the outside, even though we look the same and sound the same and say the same things, is that disobedience starts finding its way into our lives. Disobedience. I'm not talking about, you know, going all the way to the end where people go, oh my gosh, you're awful. I'm talking about those little progressive places where we start doing what we want instead of what God has commanded. We start doing the wrong things. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, Jesus says, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me. And in Acts chapter 2, what's going on, man, they're not doing it by duty, but they so love Jesus Christ that they find their joy and their fullness in following his ways because they know following Jesus' commandments is the way to be all that God meant us to be. And that's where they were. But there's a slow creep when we start experiencing the better side of life when the crisis is over and the failure's gone and the light starts to shine where we start embracing all that we're experiencing and slowly but surely we start using it for what we want instead of what he wants. The natural tendency is that over time we keep saying we love him. We keep singing that we love him. But we gradually start doing what we want rather than what he commands. We have the form of godliness. We just don't have the power we don't have him. I call this a great commission issue because the great commission that God gave us is something we're supposed to be doing. All Christ followers and all churches are to be about the great commission. Look at Matthew 28, 19 to 20. He says, if you're one of my followers, this is how I want you to live, regardless of who you are and what you do. Go and make disciples of all nations. If you're a lawyer, well then go into the law office and be about helping people find Jesus. If you're a teacher, then go into the educational environment and don't be obnoxious and don't act like you're a preacher, but live out Christ in such a way that people have to have that Jesus that you have, like they did in Acts 2. Or if you're a, if you're a factory worker, then you go into the factory and you bring light into that place where so much darkness and despair is experienced. And wherever you are, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely, as you do this, I am with you always to the very end of the age. But if you don't, I'm just knocking. Most believers in churches aren't engaged in this activity where our whole life is about living out Christ in such a way that others can find what we have. Most believers in churches are doing the wrong things. Let, let me just be really, really harsh because this is my tendency, your tendency, our tendency, and all Christians' tendency. Most people are playing church instead of being the church. They're talking X2, they're just not experiencing X2. They talk about Jesus, they just don't experience Jesus. And let me just tell you, playing church is worthless because it doesn't add hope, it adds despair because you talk about hope but no one finds it. Playing church is worthless because it declares a love that isn't being demonstrated and a generosity and a compassion that's not being demonstrated. Playing church destroys the entire concept that God is real and that God is love and that God cares and that God can change us. We have to be the church. And what does it look like when we start disobeying in these slow, progressive ways? Well, what happens is, at first, when we come to Jesus, it's all about just giving our lives to Him and giving our lives to others. I mean, we'll do anything to it, but over time what happens is that we start consuming Jesus rather than sharing Him. We start consuming the church and the average person who calls himself a Christ follower and comes to a church just comes to take. And they might put a grade on it, seven, three, ten, 
I've never gotten that one, but you know. But it's all about consuming. And hey, if you're not giving me good crap, I'll go to another place and they'll give me some good crap. In the name of Jesus, of course. We consume rather than we contribute. And I have to look at my life and I say, am I consuming or am I contributing? We begin turning inwards rather than outwards. Jesus left heaven and came to seek and to save that which was lost. But you know what the average Christian does? Turns inward to protect their interests. You know what the average church does? It turns inwards to protect its interests, to protect itself. That's not Jesus. He's knocking. What's it look like to be disobedient? We start shutting the world out rather than reaching out to the world. What happened to for God so loved the world? We've fallen too in love with ourselves. We're going to protect our interests. We start... Hating rather than loving. Oh, we say it's love, but, but if they don't believe like we do politically, we hate them and reject them. And if they don't live up to our standards, we hate them and we reject them. But we do it, of course, in the name of Jesus. But we have the form of godliness. We just deny its power. And I'm going to tell you, any Christian or any church who is more committed to a particular style of politics than they are to Jesus Christ is a problem, not a help. Politics won't change the world, but Jesus will. We start wanting something from people rather than wanting something for people. And I just need to tell you, this is Satan's goal for us. All of his efforts are geared to keep us from experiencing God's fulfillment in all of our lives and to keep us from fulfilling God's mission in this world. The evil one wants to mess us up and mess up God's work. John 10.10, thief comes to steal, to kill and destroy, and he's doing a great job. And can I just tell you something about the evil one? He doesn't mind you looking like Jesus. He doesn't mind you acting like Jesus. He doesn't mind you talking like Jesus. He doesn't mind you singing like Jesus. He just doesn't want you to have the power of Jesus. And this is where too many of us allow ourselves to get. The good news, and this is where, with those three words... You can now breathe. I know this is this is a this isn't one of those fun little talks. But I believe this is at the core of the problem. But there is this great news that you can breathe in and embrace, and this is the great news. Our failures don't have to be final. The fact that I have had the form of godliness without having his power doesn't have to be the final chapter in my story. The fact that I sing songs of light but I only live in darkness doesn't have to be what I put on my tombstone. Because Jesus said these great words, I'm knocking. Though I might have pushed him out of my life, he hasn't run away from me, he's still knocking. Though I might be running from him, he's running right alongside knocking. My failure, your failure, doesn't have to be final. But to make this change in our life, to open the door, we have to understand this truth. When our lives aren't working right as believers, when we're not experiencing life and fullness, the reality of Christ's promise in our life, it is at its core a spiritual problem. When our church isn't working right, it is at its core a spiritual problem. If we miss this reality, we'll never successfully experience change in our lives or our church. And yet, sadly, we don't tend to try and solve our problems spiritually. We try to solve our problems practically. I mean, I do. As a believer, I try and solve what's missing in my life practically. As a pastor, I try and solve what's missing here practically. And that's not the place to start. It's a spiritual issue. For example, in our lives, we try to fix the problem practically. How? By following some self-help principles. By the way, the clue that it don't, doesn't work, that it's a part of the problem, comes kind of in the description. Self-help. But this is what we do. We think, okay, I've got some problems. I, I know what I do. I can change my schedule. If I get up earlier, that'll change everything. Or I can change my activities. Maybe I could go to church more. That'll do it. I could, I could change my friends. God knows they're the problem. I, I could change my behavior. I could change how much I give. You know what many do? Many think, if I just change churches, then I'll experience the reality. No, 
Because if Jesus is on the outside of your life knocking, he'll be on the outside of your life knocking at any church in any place you are. It starts with you opening your life to him. It's a spiritual issue. In our churches, we try to fix our problem practically, organizationally. How? Uh, By leading better, planning better, strategizing better, working harder. It doesn't work. Now, don't get me wrong. Leading, planning, strategizing, working is a very important thing. But even if we're great at all of those things, if Jesus isn't on the inside, it's worthless. Because only Jesus can change us. Only God can change our lives and our churches. Only God can change you. It has to happen from the inside out. So here's the application. When our lives aren't working right, it means we're not experiencing what Jesus came to bring us. When our lives aren't working right, we don't have life and life to the full, which is what he promised to give us. And here's what we have to do. We have to realize we've shut Jesus out. If you're not experiencing life and life to the full, it's because you've Shut Jesus out because Jesus can't be in and there be no life. If you're not experiencing peace, even in the midst of the storm, it's not because there isn't peace. It's because the one who brings peace is knocking. If you're experiencing despair, it's not because of the circumstances of your life because you can have despairing circumstances and still have joy. The problem is that joy is knocking and you've got to let him in. We've shut Jesus out. We've shut him out because of selfishness, because of disobedience. Look at John 15, 5. He says, Jesus is talking. He says, I am the vine, the source of life, and you're the branches. And if anyone just remains attached to me and I to them, they're going to produce an unbelievable harvest. Life is going to be lived to the full. But apart from me, you can do nothing. I don't know about you, but every once in a while, I find myself on this slow path to doing nothing, trying really, really hard, fighting evil, enduring hardship, doing nothing. And it's because I've shut Jesus out. I really want to encourage you, if you're a believer, a Christ follower already, to realize how you can see it. You need to look at yourself and ask yourself this question. Where in my life am I demonstrating more than natural selfishness than the supernatural generosity, compassion, love for God and others. And I promise you, you're going to find it. You need to look at your life and you need to ask yourself the question, where in my life am I demonstrating disobedience where, where I might be saying I love him, I might be praying your kingdom come, your will be done, but what I'm really saying is I want you to come and show up and help me build my dreams and build my kingdom. Help me to get out of this world what I want to get out of this world. If that's you, you're not remaining in him. You've shoved him out. But the good news is, he's still knocking. And all you have to do is embrace it. Now, I believe that some here, you wonder, how come I've never experienced the reality of Jesus ever? How come I've never experienced this transforming? How come I've never experienced it? Well, it's because... You've never let them in for the first time. Look what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. It says, if anyone's in Christ, they become a new creation. The old that used to define us gone, the new has come. If you're going to experience this, you have to open your life to Christ for the first time where you say, I have lived selfishly and in disobedience from God, but Jesus, you died on that cross to take my sin away and you rose again to give me new life. I embrace it. And so now, just before we go into our worship in this service, I'm going to ask you to bow with me in a word of prayer so that we can get our hearts ready for it. And as we pray, if you're a believer, I encourage you to be talking to him about where you are on the selfishness and the disobedience journey. But if you've never opened your life to Jesus, pray with me. Take my words in this moment. You could be watching on church online or at one of our worship centers elsewhere or here in Plymouth. Take my words. And pray with me. Just say, God, I have lived a life for me. Doing what I want to do. Doing it for what I want. And that's sin. No wonder I don't have you. But I'm turning away from that. And Jesus turning to you. 
putting my faith in your death on the cross for my sin and putting my faith in your resurrection to give me new life. Change me, God. Change me now. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you just prayed with me, whether here in Plymouth or Ann Arbor, Celine, Brighton Hall, if you just prayed with me, we gave you these programs as you came into our worship centers, and I want to encourage you to take out the connection card and fill it out, and on the bottom it says that you just prayed with me. And there are boxes as you leave that you can put that in. Let us know you made this decision because we want to send you information about next steps that you can take, very important next steps. If you're watching online, there's a what next button. Please let us know. We'd love to partner with you in the same way. But here's how I want to conclude as we move into worship. When your life's not working right, don't forget. It means that Jesus isn't at the center. So what you want to do is you want to look at your life for selfish patterns. Look at your life for disobedient patterns identify them so that you can give them back to him and then listen for the knock because he's there and all you have to do is open the door and he changes everything so as we now move into worship I want to encourage you please open your heart to him let him in and let the light begin shining with the form of godliness and the power of godliness you'll experience life My home.